Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, how blessed we are to be able to come together at the end of the day and and to once again to praise You and and to remember the greatness of, of every blessing that comes our way in Christ, knowing that we were bought with a price that we are not our own, that You will for us, Father, to be conformed to the image of Jesus in all that we do. And to know that in any circumstance, whether high or low, whether dangerous or fraught with disease or freighted with danger, that there's nothing that separates us from You. And that not only that, Father, has come to us because of of the cross of Your Son Jesus, but also this great fellowship that we have in the body of Christ with people who are like-minded and people who have uh, the same the same vision for life, and the same values in which to live. Thank You for the church, Father, and we pray to always always protect the church and to love the church and to guard the church, Father, and to be blessed by the church and to be a blessing to the church in all that we do. And so as we think about our brother Peter's words written some 20 centuries ago, we're asking, Father, in the name of Jesus, that You will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stories told about a fellow that was marooned on an island for 20 years when finally an ocean liner passes by, sees his fire, arrives at the island. Uh, the guy comes running to the beach, is so thankful that he is saved meets the captain of the boat. He says, well, we're here to to get you and and your people. Uh, Come on. And the guy goes, well, let me go get my things first. And as he starts to run up the beach, the captain calls, well, don't get just your things. Get all of the people. And the guy stops, well, I'm the only one here. Why do you think there's anybody else? I've been marooned on this island by myself for all of these years. And the captain of the boat says, well, I see three huts up there and only one person. And the guy turns to him and says, oh, that hut all the way on the left is my church. And the captain says, well, what about those two other huts? And the guy goes, well, those are the two other churches I left because I couldn't get along with them. You know, one of the first lessons that most of us learn in life is that you need someone and someone needs you. I needed my children and my children needed me. God calls us to a physical manifestation called a family, and it's a place of love. But one of the first lessons we learn in our new life, which begins after our new birth in Christ, is that we need someone and someone needs us. And God calls that a church. For the church to work, it takes people to support one another and to relate and respond to one another, to give and take, to confess and forgive, and to reach out and embrace. Now, it is highly important here in our own church family that we know how to work with rather than against one another in our ministries and in our personal spiritual development and in the way that we worship, in the way that we pray for each other, in the way that we serve each other, the church should be seen as a community, as a family. And a functional one. 
the local church, wherever it's found, should be a model par excellence of what it means to live harmoniously with other individuals. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that I've had the privilege of doing, uh, this, this, uh, the first six months of 2015, I'm going to be involved in six weddings. Which is, which, is, which is a wonderful thing and, 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 a, and a, an honor and a privilege to be a part of, to see the, the start of a new family. And one of the things that, that we do here at MAC before anyone is, is married by one of our ministers is they go through a series of, of, of sessions where we do premarital counseling. And one of the things that we begin right off the, at the very beginning of our premarital counseling is to let people to know is, listen, you're a, you're a human being, a, a male with everything that it means to be a male and your experiences, your educational experiences, your painful experiences, your social experiences, your family experiences, your desires, your dreams, plus your fallenness that comes together with a human being who is a woman and what it means to be female with all of her educational experiences and, and, and uh, painful experiences and her goals and values and dreams in life and expectations, plus her fallenness. And when a marriage comes together in the way that it should, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, people should not only see unity and love, but they should see something of the Gospel in that marriage. Of what it means to forgive and what it means to love and to sacrifice and to celebrate and to be celebrated. The church in that way, should be seen as, as par excellence of what it means to live harmoniously, even though we're made up of different kinds of individuals from all over the, the United States. Now, over the years, I've come across all kinds of material about, about fellowship in the church and how to live together. Some of the most insightful words come from a fellow who died just a few years ago, a fellow by the name of J.R.W. Stott, who writes... The problem we experience whenever we think about the church concerns the tension between the ideal and the reality. The ideal is beautiful. The church is the chosen, beloved people of God. His own special treasure, the covenant community to whom He has committed Himself forever, engaged in continuous worship of God and in compassionate outreach to the world, a haven of love and peace, and pilgrim people headed for the eternal city. But in reality... We who claim to be the church are often a motley rabble of rather scruffy individuals, half-educated and half-saved, uninspired in our worship, constantly bickering with each other, concerned more for our maintenance than our mission, struggling and stumbling along the road, needing constant rebuke and exhortation, which are readily available from both Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles. End of quote. Well, if only a portion of what Stott writes is true, then there is truly a need for self-examination before the authority of God's Word to discern whether we truly live the doctrine of the church as brothers and sisters in fellowship. For Peter's day, when this letter was written, as for ours, the church as a community was vital for survival. It was vital for sustaining the faith in the midst of rampant ungodliness and, and sometimes unceasing meanness. When you think about the day in which Peter was writing to the church, the, the church, the fellowship, was needed to survive the onslaught of pushback and rejection from, from the empire and from the community that surrounded it in so many different, so, so many different regions. 
In, in the first century, the fellowship of believers provided the necessary strength to carry on in the midst of troubled times, which threatened the very physical lives of the disciples. As you know, times were tough. And even in our own time, the onslaught is different in form, but it is the same in nature. In a time when moral values are increasingly noticed more for their absence in society rather than their practice, then believers need to be the church family that embodies the Gospel, embodies the cross, embodies every teaching and every command of God found in the writings of the New Testament and to be the living embodiment of God's truth as a physical manifestation demonstrating the truth and the power and the validity of God's Word. The high standards of godly behavior. And when you live in a culture that questions the very existence of an objective truth, then disciples need need the church to reinforce the nature of Scripture by the way that they live. Now, how does the church do this? Well, notice what Peter says to the church in the first verse of our text tonight. In verse 8, he says, Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. You drop down to verse 10, and where Paul is quoting Psalm 34, he reminds the church that whoever would love life and see good days must conduct themselves in godly ways in their relationship with other people. How do you do that? Well, he says, you have to watch what you say. You have to watch what you say. To me, one of the most frightening passages in all of Jesus' teachings is found in Matthew chapter 12, where he tells people, you have to make the tree good or bad. You can't make a, a, a bad tree that's bad on the inside good in its fruit. And a tree that is, uh, that is good on the inside is going to bear that good fruit. And he says, in the same way, every person will be judged for every futile or vain word that they say. One of the things that Peter is saying is that if you want the church to be harmonious in the kind of place in which God is, 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 is discerned, is to watch what you say. To stop evil practices, to do good, to seek peace passionately. I have a hunch, even though I don't know this is true, that Psalm 34 had been turned into a hymn and Peter was quoting it to remind them of the words that they sing to each other in their assemblies on the first day of the week. And what Peter is doing in our text tonight is to move from from the relationships between husbands and wives that he's been talking about at the beginning of chapter 3 and verses 1 through 7 to the relationships between brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, Peter is giving insight and practical instruction into developing what it means to be a strong and vibrant fellowship or a discord-proofing church. Here are Peter's five attitudes that protect the church. Number one. Be sympathetic. The very first attitude that he addresses is sympathy. He writes very plainly in verse 8, be sympathetic. This means to feel what another feels. Paul describes this action in the church this way in Romans chapter 12, verse 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. It means, it means to enter into the joy of another person. It means to enter into the sorrow of another person. Now, all of us can picture in our minds someone who 
epitomizes a sympathetic heart. Someone who seems not to not only know what is going on in someone else's life, but is able to extend to them that sense of solidarity. That person that is able to, to, to connect with another person and become their companion in suffering. Hopefully we all have in our life someone who helps us to know that we are never alone regardless of, of what it is that we might be going through. But according to Peter, this is an attitude that all believers are to cultivate. If anyone on the face of earth knows how deep sin can cut into a life, it ought to be God's people. If there's anyone who should know the the the, the, the nature of the danger and the hurt that can come because of sin. It should be the people who are on a daily basis on this pilgrimage to draw closer to God and enveloped into His holiness. If anyone should know what it means to struggle spiritually, it ought to be God's people. And part of being an effective brother or sister in the fellowship of the church is in showing that you care. You know, we're surrounded by a million advice givers, talk radio, all kinds of newspaper articles. There's books. But an axiom I've found true in life countless times is that people do not care what you know until they know how much you care. We've all heard Everett Heiston say that a million times. And one of the best ways to show someone that you care is just by listening to them. Listening shows that you care enough to take time to understand what is going on at the level at the level of their pain and to the level of their suffering and sorrow and anguish, then that, that brings forth a, a snap judgment. Part of our old nature is to rush to an opinion based on appearance. To get upset and to speak foolishly and quickly about something that is as profound as a person's heart and soul. There was a movie that came out um, some years ago that, that starred Jack, Jack Lemon, who was a, a minister parish church who had invited a young man to be, his, uh, 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 to be mentored by him and eventually to take over the church. And he was a little bit of a, of a, of a rebel to Jack Lemon's uh, suave leadership. But there came a point in which Lemon completely understood what was at the heart of his young protege when he got up to preach his final sermon and talked about how as he walked through the halls of the church that he wished he had the language of a fish, that he understood fish language. And he gave the example of, of, of growing up. Uh, he had a, a, an aquarium that sat next to a, a, a window facing the western sun in his house. And as uh, the sun would come down, the, the, the water in the tank would, would heat up. And as he looked at the fish and he looked at the water, he couldn't tell that it was getting hot, hotter. And the fish couldn't tell him that it was getting too hot for them to survive. And it was only after he came in some hours later, after time had passed, that he realized that the fish were at a place where they were about to perish and to, and, and to die and to go under. And he said he had always wanted from that point on, knowing that people in so many instances expend so much energy to convince people that they're doing okay, that he could develop that kind of language to understand when somebody was dying on the inside but didn't quite have the words to say it. The world needs something different than that rush to judgment. 
And the people that we, we fellowship with here develop, uh, deserve better. And so James, in James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, said, Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And then he says a second thing. Not only be sympathetic, but love his brothers. Once more, Peter turns to the call to have love as a mark of fellowship. And the word here is Philadelphia. Philadelphoi, the, the, the word originally meant blood ties, that is, the love between siblings. Now it refers to spiritual ties through the blood of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we've, we've talked a lot about what it means to love one another and to have that Philadelphia kind of love where we engage with each other as brothers and sisters. But one of the things we must constantly remind ourselves is that our Christian duty is discharged in love. There should be such a thing as, as Philadelphia here in our church family that makes it hard for people to walk out of a relationship with another brother or sister. There, there's going to be disagreements. And there's going to be profound disagreements. But the maturity of relationship that is couched in this kind of love should make it incredibly hard, incredibly painful for people just to walk out of our fellowship. Paul would say it this way, Romans chapter 12, verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. I think it would be a fair statement to say that that kind of love has to be worked at all the time. And the reasons for that is that those with, with whom we live in community are not, unfortunately, all the time lovable. We're just not. And because our brothers and sisters are constantly uh, unlovable, there is uh, number three, which he, he's, he gives in verse 8, as be compassionate. In verse 8, very plainly again, be, be, be compassionate. Compassion, in, in many ways, is really more than just an emotion. Compassion leads to action. Think about Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 36. When He saw the crowd, He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then He said to His disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray. Therefore, the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into, into the harvest. In Matthew chapter 14, just a couple of chapters later, He went ashore, He saw a great throng, and He had compassion on them and healed their sick. Later on, a leper came to him, beseeching him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity or compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Frederick Buechner writes, Compassion is the sometimes fatal capacity for feeling what it's like to live inside of somebody else's skin. It is the knowledge that there can never really be any peace and joy for me until there is peace and joy for you too. Fourth thing, Peter says, is to be humble. Humility is not false modesty, is it? You know that, um, you know, an example is... You know that you are good at pinochle or bridge, but through you know, gentlemen, uh, gentlemanly self-deprecation, you say that you're not. 
you know. I love this quote on false modesty by Gilbert in Rudiger. He says, You have no idea of what a poor opinion I have of myself and how little I deserve it. It's, it, it's not knowing that you're a terrible golfer and being rather proud of yourself for admitting it. That, that form of humility is closer to low comedy. Humility is rather the evaluation we have of ourselves knowing that we are dependent on God. And one of the signs of a humble heart is the joy one feels at seeing the success of another person. And then the last thing tonight from verse 9, he says, seek to bless. Seek to bless. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing and then in verse 10 you must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech to go back to that premarital counseling one of the things that just gets stressed over and over and over again as we talk about uh, the, the couple's love languages and discovering that and, and going through the his needs, her needs material and, and the, the fight less, uh, love more material that we go, for, go through and conflict resolution is that, is that the bottom line is that you have to decide whether or not you're going to bless your spouse on a regular basis. That you're going to love them, that you're going to be humble, that you're going to be compassionate, that you're going to do all of those things with them, but that on a daily basis you're going to seek to bless them. Probably in no other way do we imitate the life of Christ than when we become a channel of blessing to other people. Every, every relationship I know, every relationship I know needs massive amounts of blessing. We all have this tremendous ability to hurt other people. You know, when, when you think about it... Um, how long did it really take you to discover how to, hurt, how to deeply hurt your spouse? About ten minutes into the first date. If you're listening, and if you pay attention, the, 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 to hear where people are vulnerable, and to hear where they're weak, and to hear the things that they don't like, gives you all the ammo you need to be able to, to, to devastate them at times. We have a tremendous ability to hurt other people. Mainly because we do not watch what we say. And there are times when people will stockpile records of wrongdoing for years and years. And, and the world is not large enough to hold all of the reasons for not blessing other people. And quite frankly... There's only one reason that we bless people. It's because we were blessed. One of the most powerful things that Paul says in, in the book of Romans, or the letter to the Romans, is found in chapter 5 where he says, you see, at just the right time, when we were so powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross shapes your speech. 
And the cross motivates your compassion. And the cross forms the love. And it's the cross that makes you humble. And so when you think about the level of blessing other people, just in this one little area, how has your speech been in the last 24 hours? With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, James says, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow out of the same spring? So Peter ends this section when he talks about the church and its fellowship and its clinging together with these words. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Jeff will lead us in a song right now. Some of our shepherds are going to come down to the front. If there are ways that we might minister to you, might pray for you, that, that you gain in strength and in maturity as, as you seek to, to be a vibrant, dynamic member of, of the Lord's body, as you contribute to the wholesomeness and the health levels of the church, maybe you might need the prayers or you might need the encouragement of the church. Or it might be that you've never given yourself to God and become a part of His body, the church. Well, if those are things that we can help, help you with tonight, then come down to the front and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God together.